In the last two weeks, the eruption of Kilauea, a shield volcano on the big island of Hawaii, has forced roughly 2,000 residents to evacuate, destroyed around 40 structures, and even caused several serious injuries. Today, we are joined by Dr. Janine Krippner to explore the vast world of volcanology, where things are quite similar to the weather community. Yeah, it's a, it's a powerful thing when you see that people need something and you have the expertise to provide it. No, I'm not monitoring these volcanoes. I'm not an official. I'm not with USGS. I was never with the um, officials in Indonesia, even though I've been in touch. But the years of research and experience I have means I can communicate. And that's important. We need both. We need the social sciences part of it and the science. And you have to care enough to do it really well and be so careful with everything you say, even if it's a really sassy tweet going out to make people realize that something is not right. (laughs) While the Kilauea event has been devastating, it is our hope that it can bring hazard communities together to learn from one another. Therefore, this podcast is a first step toward learning about the similarities and differences between the volcanology and meteorological communities. I'm Castle. And I'm in. And you're listening to Weather Hype, a podcast where we talk about weather, climate, and how it affects you. So stay tuned because we're talking all about volcanoes, social media, and risk communication coming up next on this week's episode of Weather Hype. Now I'm the reason why you broke up with him and got back together Thought I was sunshine, but baby, I'm bad weather I'm off the Doppler in the five-day forecast By the time they hear me, I've already pushed the shore back No, no, I wasn't always like this Skies cleared soon as my daylight lit Sidewalks dried up, no snow emergency I could take you February and turn it into spring I was born on a storm When I get gone, I get gone hey. And I don't need anyone to know better Put your faith in Okay, and um, can you please introduce your name and your title for us, please? I am Dr. Janine Krippner. I'm a volcanologist and postdoctoral researcher at Concord University. Perfect. Okay, and where is Concord University at? West Virginia. West Virginia. Perfect. Castle, you want to start us off? Sure. Um, So we're so glad that you're with us today. Um, Thank you again for agreeing to come on the show. We really want to know a little bit about you and kind of like what you study and maybe how um, the recent Kilauea event kind of maybe relates to your research or doesn't or um, kind of what you do. Yeah, so I'm actually more in the explosive side of volcanology. So my research has been looking at explosive eruptions and pyroclastic flows, which are one of the most deadly phenomena on Earth. So kind of the opposite end of the spectrum to these lava flows we're seeing on Kilauea right now. But I also have sort of a side project looking at social media communication and volcanology. So that's really where, Mm. I mean... We're all seeing so much misinformation (laughs) right now around this eruption. And I think it's kind of merging volcanology and meteorology with, I know how you feel. (laughs) 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 So I'm really paying attention to that, as well as just learning so much from this beautiful yet very sad eruption. And you mentioned a little bit earlier, so you're dealing with more explosive volcanoes um, as part of your research. And you mentioned that Kilauea is more of lava flows and um, maybe not as um, maybe when people have helicopter views or they show volcanoes exploding or we think of Mount St. Helens or uh, Mount Rainier exploding. That's not exactly what Kilauea is, correct? Can you tell us a little bit more about the type of volcano that Kilauea is in Hawaii? Absolutely. So that we're clear. Kilauea is not like Mount St. Helens or Rainier or Krakatau in Indonesia or any other subduction zone explosive volcano. Kilauea is a shield volcano and it's over a hotspot. So what that produces is a very prolific runny lava producing volcano. So we see these um, beautiful, incredibly fluid lava flows that have now reached the ocean today. And the explosive part of this eruption has been because of steam, not because of Mm. magma. So whereas Mount St. Helens, you see um, the 1980, my 18th footage of this huge ash plume going up into the air. That's because magma is basically blowing apart and jetting up into the atmosphere. Whereas 
What we're seeing on Kilauea at the summit is the lava lake has drained, so there's a huge crater there now. And rock falls are occurring because the lava is no longer holding the rock balls up and mm-hmm. in place. And those rock falls can create a kind of a cap over the bottom of that. And all of that mixed with the water table, the water from the rocks now making their way into the crater, that produces a lot of steam. And if you cap that with those rocks, that steam can build up pressure and then that can blow. Oh, gotcha. Wow. That is really, really cool. Um, And, you know, how have some of the local weather conditions played a role in um, the aftermath or the event of Kilauea's eruption and um, what's going on after that as well? Yes. So weather is really important. Um, The main hazard, well, other than the actual lava inundation, is the gas. So the gases that are coming out from these Mm. fissures, um, they have clearer days when the wind can blow it away. But if the wind isn't blowing it away, that can accumulate and it's being measured at very dangerous levels near those fissures. And the areas that are impacted by volcanic ash, which is tiny rock bits, is, compl- is largely wind dependent as well. So the, this volcano is really interacting with the local weather to, to determine who is impacted by these non-lava processes. So I was reading yesterday, and correct me if I'm wrong, so we... I was reading that the area was experiencing some rain and that was also kind of impacting things and making uh, perhaps the air quality a bit better. Is that the case or like how is maybe other weather conditions or precipitation kind of impacting things? Yeah, if you have rain going through that air column, you can rain out some of the gases in the ash. So that can help as well. Since we're on the topic of weather, um, I've been reading a a lot um, about this volcano recently and some of the things that kind of struck me were this idea of forecasting volcanic eruptions or perhaps the lava flows and maybe the challenges that go along with that. And so I think men and I have been able to kind of create some connections and linkages to weather in that sense. Can you tell us maybe a little bit about the forecasting process and um, perhaps some of the challenges or uh, things that you've kind of know about? Yeah, so I think the biggest challenge is with volcanoes, Mm -hmm. the stuff we're measuring is happening below the surface. We can't directly measure it. Um, We can measure the seismicity or the earthquakes that are forming as magma and fluids are breaking their way through the rock to the surface, but we can't actually see the magma. Um, And I I really appreciate how difficult uh, weather forecasting is as well. Um, but it must be really nice to be able to point a satellite at the sky and measure different parts of it. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So, and we have this additional complication that no no matter how much we learn about a particular volcano, it can't necessarily be applied to the next one. Every volcano is different. They each have their own personalities, Mm -hmm. um, which means they each have a different buildup towards an eruption. And these buildups can even be different at different eruptions from the same volcano. Mm, So we can know a lot about what the signals mean and every, every single part of volcano monitoring, whether it's seismology, gas, remote sensing, deformation, every single one of those is a very intricate specialty. So you need all of these specialties to come together as well as knowing the history of that particular volcano. And only then, if you have monitoring in place before it erupts, can you even hope to forecast an eruption? Oh, yeah, that's a good point. Wow. It seems like a multidisciplinary project in itself. It really is. Having all those different backgrounds coming together and like communicating with one another and actually helping to kind of figure things out. It is. And in order for all of that to mean anything, we need to know how to communicate. So social sciences is important. And we need to work with the local governments, the emergency responders, the um, people who are going to call evacuations if they're going to be evacuations, people like civil defense. So you've got to be able to communicate with a huge range of people. And um, Janine, these volcanoes affect local people. How important is local knowledge, indigenous knowledge to understanding, you know, maybe the past of a volcano and, and how it erupted, how it affected the people? Because um, Kilauea, we, we read a little bit about how it relates to Hawaiian, um, you know, gods and goddesses. And I think Castle, was it Pele? the uh, Hawaiian volcano mm-hmm. goddess. Yes. And yeah. so mm-hmm. we were wondering if um, yeah. how that plays into your uh, understanding and your research into volcanoes and how it affects people on a local level. 
It's definitely important. You, as you know, as a scientist, you have to have respect for the local people, the local cultures, and the local beliefs. Um, you know, it's it's their mm-hmm. land. We're going in to help. And the yeah. stories that they tell can actually be really helpful in giving us giving us an idea of what volcanoes were like in the past, before things were written down, before we had Twitter with people <laughs> tweeting what volcanoes were doing. <laughs> so, for example, there are. Um, legends of places like Mount St. Helens throwing fire and rocks at other volcanoes and the other volcanoes throwing them back. That tells you that that was probably an active volcano (laughs) in our very Mm -hmm. recent Mm -hmm. past. So we can definitely learn from them. For sure. Uh, We had talked briefly right before we um, called you about uh, Moana, the movie. And I mean, we don't know how accurate it is or how inaccurate it is, but we were thinking about... um, um, the uh, the island and how it was formed and they had that explosive scene with the volcano erupting and returning the heart to Tefiti, I think. Mm-hmm. Have, you, have you seen the movie? I hope you have because if you haven't, this is probably really <laughs> weird. <laughs> it, I'm, so I'm from New Zealand and all of the Pacific cultures are quite similar. Okay. So that movie really made me homesick. <laughs> oh. <laughs> oh. <laughs> so yes. And in New Zealand, is it the Maori people? Is that or the Maori? Yeah. Okay, gotcha. Very cool. Um, it's yeah, it's very interesting. And I right before we did this um or doing this call too, I saw on Twitter they were talking about the importance of understanding local knowledge, even with regard to things like climate change or sea level rise, things like that. So um, it's a very universal idea to get personal uh, perspectives from local people for everything that we do in science and very important that we realize how um, crucial it really is to our research. Um, And what you had talked about earlier as well, you touched on it briefly, that you're analyzing um, volcanology and social media. And with Kilauea's eruption, you have been the go-to volcanologists on social media on twitter <laughs> for great accurate information um a little bit of sassiness uh sassiness at times as well which is very appreciated <laughs> and uh your we your gift game that. is very strong by the way um oh, thank you <laughs> so we've seen trusted news organizations referring to kilauea as being uh, lying along the pacific ring of fire um we've also seen that kilauea's eruption was um inaccurately um, related to other volcanic eruptions like Indonesia's Mount Merapi, um, how does how frustrating can that be when you're seeing you know these news outlets or even just anybody tweeting out false information, putting out, uh, bad information out there? And, and what are you trying to do about that? It is so frustrating. It really is. Like <laughs> I got um, really involved with this side of things. Uh, in last September during the Agung crisis in Bali in Indonesia. Okay. And that's when I saw firsthand, I wasn't there, I was um, in Pittsburgh at the time, uh, working all through the night, every single night for three and a half months to try and communicate information because I had a friend who was over there and he said, hey, what the heck is going on? Mm -hmm. (laughs) I'm being told by people in New Zealand that the island is about to blow up and flights are about to be cancelled. So me thinking that this was just going to be the same old, same old talking about a volcanic event on Twitter turned into me trying to trend, well, working really hard to translate the information from Indonesian into English. So people knew where to get the information from. And I got a lot of people reaching out to me personally who are scared, who are scared for their family or their children who are in Bali, Mm -hmm. who are reading these awful headlines, um, especially out of tabloids in the UK about how this volcanic eruption was imminent and it was going to be deadly and huge and it was going to be like Mount St. Helens and all of this really wrong information. So I just started tweeting and working with media to try and get the right information out there. So I've seen firsthand by these people contacting me and feeling how they were feeling at the time has really impacted my life. That's really, you know, good to hear and and it's it really yeah. touches on a more personal note too because you know, when these things happen, like mm-hmm. we, we all have a passion for what we study. You have a passion for studying volcanoes, you know, and we have passion studying weather, climate, communication, things like that. And when you see these things playing out and you see the real lives that are at stake and the real and raw emotions, it really hits home for you. And it drives you to do as much as you can, even more than you can to get the information out there, the right information out there. 
Um, and so yes. it's it's great to hear that you're doing that and, and actively reaching out and having, you know, media outlets reach out to you to try to get the information, the facts correct. Yeah, it's, it's so important to me. And it, it's not just when we have um, erupting volcanoes, like Yellowstone is another key player in bad media. Um, about a month ago, I had a dad reach out to me hmm. um, through a private message asking me to please just talk to him, just chat to him because his little girl had read a tabloid headline about how Mount St. Helens was about to blow. I'm not sorry, Mount Yellowstone was about to blow and it was going to be an extinction event. And she was so scared. She was crying and throwing up. Oh man. This poor little girl. Oh my God. <laughs> so stuff like that, you know, I care. I really care. I think a lot of us in these kind of communities who are spending time on social media, we care about this stuff. This kind of reminds me of, uh, Ada Monzon, um, and her story. Mm, yeah. Um, uh, so I can see a lot of connections, especially with this personal relevance. It it really takes it to a whole nother level and really kind of uh, really makes someone want to do their job better and to kind of take on the media. So Janine, the Ottoman zone, she was um, a broadcaster in Puerto Rico um, during Hurricane Maria, and she got so many followers over the course of days because she was actually able to provide information, especially when the power went out. Um, and like people constantly started like leaning on her for information, trying to figure out like what they can do and how they can keep their family safe. So I can see a lot of connections um, between you guys. Yeah, it's a it's a powerful thing when you see that people need something and you have the expertise to provide it. No, I'm not monitoring these volcanoes. I'm not an official. I'm not with USGS. I was never with the um, officials in Indonesia, even though I've been in touch. But the years of research and experience I have means I can communicate and that's important. We need both. We need the social sciences part of it and the science and you have to care enough to do it really well and be so careful with everything you say, even if it's a really sassy tweet going out <laughs> to make people realize that something is not right. <laughs> exactly. Wasn't there a tweet that said, or there was a newspaper uh, headline, I think that said, um, you know, with the um, the steam causing the um, eruptions or the more uh, explosive eruptions and saying refrigerator size refrigerators were going to be spewed from the volcano. <laughs> <laughs> That, that, was, that, that, that has made me laugh every time I've seen it. Somebody did not copy edit that. <laughs> but no, and it's not the writers that write these headlines. It's, you know, that's that's someone else. So, oh, my gosh. Um, I've since spoken to both of those writers, uh, not the people that wrote the headline, but the people whose names are attached sure, to the headline. Sure. Um, but you've just got to oh, laugh yeah. sometimes. Um, these are very serious situations, and sometimes you just have to laugh and of let course. that go. <laughs> and speaking of headlines and the way that, you know, sometimes this narrative in the media about um, sensationalizing volcanic eruptions, you know, there's... If it wasn't for, you know, the current presidential administration, there wouldn't be anything else to talk about. But now we're seeing, you know, people talking about this volcano. It's been a it's been, a, you know, erupting for the past two weeks or so, I think. And so we've heard about it constantly in the news. And it's very interesting. But now we're hearing terms like um, lava bomb and other, you know, terms to kind of um, scare people in a way. And it, it, some parallels are found within the meteorology community as well when we talk oh, yeah. about things like the polar vortex during the winter time ushering in very cold air into the United States, or we're talking about derecho or mm -hmm. things like that. Um, are there other bombogenesis? Yeah, bombogenesis, or even oh, fun ones one. like the, the pineapple express, or you know things like that. There are so many buzzwords <laughs> that they use in meteorology. So in addition to lava bombs, and if you can ex actually explain what a lava bomb is, but in addition to that, are there other terms that you've heard that are being misused or misrepresented in the media? Yeah. So honestly, I never thought of lava bomb. Like that is a term. That's a word we use. I never thought of it being anything other than a fluid clot of lava. <laughs> and then I started seeing the media using that word. I'm like, oh God, they think it's a bomb that's going to blow up. <laughs> like it's, it's words that sure. we use all the time. And then you see it in a headline and you're like, oh no, that has a completely different meaning for mm -hmm. everyone else. <laughs> Um, so yeah, that has definitely been one that, that took me by surprise. I'm always learning where we need to do better with communication. Uh, the word imminent, ah, ooh. that is, that's, that's a buzzword and it's not correctly used. 
So it's very rare that volcanology has a chance where a volcano is well monitored enough and has enough lead time to give an imminent eruption warning. Hmm. But it is in the, um, the wording of the statements just yeah. in case. So there's this warning saying an eruption is either imminent or in progress or yep. blah, 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 blah. And the only word that is picked out of that is mm. the imminent word. And then large explosive eruption is tied to that imminent word and it gets a lot worse. Um, but explosive eruption, I mean, that's even a different context here too. Like we have the Mount St. Helens or the Krakatau and then we have the Kilauea explosive eruption. They're all completely yeah. different. <laughs> So it's our words and we need to figure out how to better word them or better, sorry, phrase them or which caveats to put with them or change our wording altogether. Ooh, man. It's, Cass it's almost like, on some good stuff. I know. It's <laughs> almost like language is a weapon and we're putting the weapon into the wrong hands when we're, when we're like giving, when, when they're kind of using our own language against us. Um, this happens so often. In other, I will, <laughs> yeah. Like, it's so good to talk to someone else who like, totally understand yeah <laughs> she gets us she, yeah she and gets it's, us. it is no yeah. <laughs> i do i do and it's a shock because it's hang on because you read the headline the first time you're like yeah that's right and then you see the reactions to the headline and the headline reproduced you're like wait what <laughs> wait step oh my back gosh. that's so true though you're like wow they depicted it correctly and and you read it but then you're like wait a minute that's definitely not how it's being perceived by everybody else <laughs> yeah yeah, it's, it's stepping out of the scientific writing kind of jargon mm -hmm. language into, you know, normal human being language again and going, wait, there are more yeah, than one meanings exactly. to this word. And um, Janine, you are giving out great information on social media, but you've also had to deal with internet trolls or people that we've seen who have been trying to, quote unquote, mansplain things to you Check or you. correct you um <laughs> how do you interact with people like that you're giving out great information to a lot of curious people who truly want to know and understand more but there are also people who are trolling you or, or attacking you um how do you deal with that kind of environment and how do you best i guess maximize optimize your social media presence to make sure that you're giving the most information out to the most people that are really genuinely curious about it. I'm actually really lucky. The vast majority of people who I interact with on Twitter or who comment are wonderful. They're really kind and patient and very sweet. Um, I get a lot of great messages. And I found this through Agung as well. Um, so it's not something I have to deal with very often. And when it does happen, I really just ignore it. <laughs> <laughs> Unless it's something that I see that is um, a sign of a much deeper belief that's going around, sure. mm -hmm. I'll usually just ignore it. I mean, I can't respond to everything anyway. Sure. So, um, and there are some people who are misunderstood, um, don't mean things the way that other people take them. And so you really have to kind of give people the benefit of the doubt as well. Um, some people genuinely don't understand, and that's fine. And we have to be able to be kind and open-minded and not necessarily reading into a situation the way we would, especially if we're tired and have been communicating a crisis for quite a long time. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. No, that, that's great advice, Castle. I think that we were talking about that a little bit, yeah. too, and it's trying that's to understand how to best tackle those issues. And I think you hit a lot on, on the stuff that you don't have to necessarily respond to every single person, but um, find the people who are, are they actually are asking good questions or actually curious. And maybe some people who may come off as, you know, aggressive, but they're, they don't mean to be and we don't want to read too much into that and give them the benefit of the doubt. Yeah, absolutely. Um, during a going, I had a couple of angry messages and knowing that these people are in Bali and they're in, ex in an extremely difficult situation, I responded with kindness. I was like, yeah, I hear you. This is frustrating. I'm sorry. I wish I could do more. And they always ended up being thankful after that. So it always turned around. I have a quick question. Um, is there like a, a, a large presence of like volcanologists on Twitter? Like, do you have a, like a community kind of presence on Twitter as like volcanology? Yes. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. There are a lot of um, great scientists on there um, as well as seismology and geology is quite, um, well, geoscience as a lot of us follow each other. Um, so yeah, there are a lot of really fantastic people on social media. And how is the interaction amongst 
the the scientists. I feel like men, you know where I'm going with this, but um, <laughs> <laughs> within the weather community, it's not always. Uh, how do I phrase this nicely? Um, we don't always play well together. I guess is the best way to put it. Um, <laughs> oh dear. So, I uh, was just curious. Uh, my experience has been great, uh, really good. I, I've i only had a couple of scientists who weren't volcanologists uh, try to slap me down, but mm. uh, I think that was more out of them misunderstanding that I'm not communicating to other scientists necessarily. Mm. Uh-huh. So the way you communicate to scientists, if you just have your little circle of scientists, is different. To if you're also putting information out for media and people who are actually on a volcano or near a volcano. Mm -hmm. So I think there's a bit of a misunderstanding with that, which causes it. But no, I've had great interactions, very supportive interactions with other volcanologists and scientists on Twitter. In fact, they really did help me finish my PhD. Oh, great. (laughs) Nice. So we're going to transition a bit and talk about some stuff that I love. <laughs> so when we're thinking about um, the weather alert system, so we have this watch warning advisory system that we use. And so I was doing a little bit of research into the volcano alert system um, yesterday, and I noticed um, the different levels. And, I, and I'll and i kind of say them right now for our listeners. Um, so you have normal Normal says a volcano is in typical background, non-eruptive state, or after a change from a higher level, volcanic activity has ceased and volcano has returned to non-eruptive background state. Um, So then it goes advisory, watch, and then warning. So with our system, it's kind of the reverse. So it goes uh, normal, watch, advisory, then warning. So I was just curious about perhaps your knowledge of maybe how well known the warning system, the volcano alert uh, system is well known in communities that um, have to deal with volcanic hazards. And um, I guess we'll start with there and I'll ask questions as we go on. It really depends on where you are. There are some incredible people and volcanologists out there working very hard with their communities um, to make sure that they understand what these means and getting feedback on them too. You know, mm-hmm. this is always a two-way conversation. Of course. Um, but from what I have seen, whether going in Kilauea on the broader communities, it's not that well understood. Okay. <laughs> like warning means hazardous eruption is imminent, underway, or suspected. Yeah. Um, and then we have the aviation color codes. And remember, these are different across countries too. This is just sure. the U.S. system. So the red aviation color code which is to communicate to all of the aviation industry, which might be flying over a potentially ash-producing volcano, and ash and airplanes do not play well together, (laughs) means, (laughs) not at all, eruption is imminent with significant emission of volcanic ash into the atmosphere likely, or eruption is underway or suspected with significant emission of volcanic ash into the atmosphere. So a few days ago, Kilauea went to red, and that was because eruption is underway or suspected. But that first line of eruption is imminent mm-hmm. with significant emission of volcanic ash. That was all that was taken from that. Gotcha. So um, I don't know the level of understanding within the communities around there. I don't work there and I haven't been there. But the global community, the global media community does not understand these. And that's, you know, that's fine. It just tells me as a volcanologist that we have more work to do. Mm-hmm. The reason this is so interesting to me is I'm uh, working with a group to kind of improve our own weather uh, warning system. Um, so I think that we have not done enough of looking to other hazards. And I have let some of those individuals know that I've been talking about the volcano alert system since I read about it yesterday. Um, so I think it's really important that we kind of cross into other hazards and learn um, from their challenges, but also some of their uh, successes too. Um, so I think it's super awesome that you're here because I've already learned so much. So um, <laughs> it's been awesome. Yeah, it's I can I completely agree. In fact, just before a gung started, which um, my involvement with that started on the 22nd of September on that fateful day, um, before that was Harvey and Irma and Maria. Mm-hmm. So I was very closely watching the meteorology community responding to these hazards. And some of the tweets that went out were very powerful because they had emotion behind them. They had uncertainty behind them. They had 
caring for people behind them. And I was really wowed by how the messaging across uh, meteorology, just from what I could see, was really good. And I was sitting there thinking, we have so much to learn from meteorology. (laughs) So I've been trying to um, talk to more meteorologists since then as well. Is there a lot of, um, or do you know a lot of researchers or um, people in the community that specifically study risk communication of volcanology? Yes, absolutely. There are some really great researchers working um, with social scientists or social scientists themselves studying these. So there's a lot of great work being done by people around the world. Um, Like New Zealand does a lot of really great work too. And understanding how these are actually perceived by people. So the other thing that I kind of wanted to touch on was um, protective actions and what people should do um, in the event of different volcanic hazards. Mm -hmm. So I was curious if there are certain protective actions that are potentially associated with each of the alert levels that we just talked about, or if there are more kind of general protective actions that um, kind of your community would want people to react, how you would want them to like respond behaviorally to these different alerts? That's that's definitely complicated. Okay. Um, it not only depends on the state of unrest of the volcano, but it depends on what the volcano is. Okay. So the protection measures for Kilauea down in the fissure zone, which is um, being aware of lava, potential lava inundation or the gas, mm-hmm. is very different to if you have a Mount St. Helens type eruption, which could have flying rocks and pyroclastic flows, which are hot... Um, avalanches of exploding rock that race down a volcano at hundreds of miles per hour or lahars which go down river um, river valleys and can inundate a river in, in seconds and car- while carrying trees and boulders and huge rocks um, so those actions where it can just be you need to evacuate now mm-hmm. get out of there immediately are very different to um, if you just have very light ash fall, which is stay indoors, be more careful if you have respiratory issues, protect your eyes because no one wants ground rock on their eyes. <laughs> definitely not. <laughs> so <laughs> it definitely depends. <laughs> it, it, I can honestly tell you it sucks. Oh, no. <laughs> oh, my gosh. <laughs> so whereas some of the hazards will probably kill you or make it, you feel like you probably wish you did, other hazards are just irritants. I was reading uh, several articles about getting the um, like on the ground perspective. They're interviewing a lot of people who had evacuated um, and several. I saw several reports of people uh, mentioning that they were not sure what to take with them when they evacuated. Um, so mm-hmm. I was curious if you if there was uh, certain things that you would want to tell people, like if they were going to evacuate certain things that they should take with them. Yeah. Um, first of all, You've really got to have this done or organized or have a list before you're in crisis mode. Because mm-hmm. when people are in crisis mode, it's very difficult to try and figure out what to take. Because I've heard stories of people looking around and with um, something dangerous coming, now everything looks worthless. Yeah, You know, the priorities are completely changed. The brain is working differently because they're in a crisis. So people really need to plan ahead. And things that are really important are important um, documents. So for me as a foreigner, that would be my immigration papers and my passport, uh, birth certificate, things like that. Medications are really important. People have got to take their medications with them. People can get in trouble when they evacuate and don't have what they need to stay healthy. Um, And then things that are really important, um, like mental health is a crucial part of keeping safe. Mm -hmm. So if there's something that is really important to you, you need to take that too. And pets. Um, Some people have got caught out where they Mm. couldn't get back to their animals. But if you have a chance, you need to take your pets. And the same goes for them. Their important documents, their medications, Mm -hmm. food and water, um, change of clothing, that kind of thing. Underwear, socks. Um, Those little things are going to make your life so much easier once you're either in an evacuation center or staying with friends or family. Yeah, I'm seeing a lot of parallels with hurricane evacuations. Mm -hmm. So I think this is like... um, some super cool stuff that could um, researchers could work together and um, kind of think through some of these things. The other question that I had was um, how long is like a usual event, or I guess there is no usual event, but like in general, is there like a time frame where people would expect to be evacuated from perhaps their, their house or their, their neighborhood or community? No, it, that depends on the kind of volcano, the amount of sure. warning that is given, and if the volcano is monitored. So 
we, there are potentially around 1,500 active volcanoes on Earth. And by that, I mean volcanoes that have erupted in about the last 10,000 years. They could have wake up in the next few days, weeks, or months. That's a lot of volcanoes. Yeah, and is. volcano monitoring takes people and money. It takes funding. So a lot of those are not monitored. So if a volcano gives warning signs like earthquakes and deformation and gas, it means nothing if no one is there to see it. But uh, one example, back in 2013, Calbuco Volcano in Chile erupted with no perceived warning. Um, but the locals did start to smell sulfur leading up to the eruption and felt a few earthquakes. So they had very little time to get out. But you might have another volcano like Mount St. Helens in 1980 where they started monitoring this thing in early March. And even though they had no idea what it would do, there was no way they could back then, um, or even today. That was a crazy eruption. Uh, but there were weeks leading up to that eruption. Mm -hmm. So there is really no wow. set time. It might be you need to leave now because a fast-moving lava flow just started and has taken out the road mm -hmm. and is going to take out your house. Or this volcano is slowly showing signs of life, and since we know this is a very dangerous volcano, we need to give you warning to get out. So with Kilauea, how there was an earthquake initially that occurred, correct? And and then there was um, some time to allow for residents to evacuate. I think uh, roughly 2,000 residents were evacuated or ordered to evacuate. I'm not sure if everybody took that uh, evacuation order, but hopefully most did. But how much time did they have in this event to, to prepare and uh, leave the area before it was too late? Do you know? The trouble with Kilauea, the East Rift Zone, is that this could have popped up anywhere. Okay. It just happened to pop up under the Leilani Estates okay. area. Mm. So the USGS, the Hawaiian Volcano Observatory, has done an incredible job because not only do they monitor this volcano, but they know what it's done in the past. They've spent a lot of time and energy researching the past eruptions, and that's crucial. So they saw that the activity at the summit lake was changing, that lava lake, it overflowed and then it started draining. Mm, okay. And at the same time, there were earthquakes moving down underneath the east rift zone, as well as deformation or changing of the actual physical ground surface. And then cracks started opening up. So once those cracks started opening up, I think that was a bit of a more clear sign, but you still couldn't say for sure that this is exactly where this is going to happen and when, because this magma is a constantly changing sure. system. So the last question I'll ask, and this is one that's kind of close to my heart, is, is there ever a, a time or like a, a situation where there might be conflicting protective actions that are kind of offered? Um, so what I'm thinking about is in whether we... Oftentimes there may be like a tornado where you're supposed to take shelter, um, but then there's also like a flash flood where you're supposed to evacuate. And so if those happen simultaneously, then we have kind of a conflicting protective action situation. And so I was curious mm. if that kind of instance might, may ever come up um, when we're thinking about volcanic hazards. Yeah, we have similar things where you can have ash fall and um, rocks falling from the sky, which would be a shelter in place. Mm -hmm. And then you have lahars. Um, or park plastic flows, which are evacuated immediately or get out of that area. Okay. So, yeah, we have a similar situation with that, too. I can't think of any actual examples from that off the top of my head, but it's definitely possible. So I have a question for you sure. guys. Oh, yes. Um, I've been watching the meteorology community for a while, and that partly stems from me growing up watching Dante speak and Twister. <laughs> so being really fascinated with your field. How long have have many of you been watching other like volcanology or seismology fields for very long, or is this kind of recent that you're looking at us going, oh, they have problems too. Mm. We should work together. That's a good question. <laughs> um, I'll go first. Um, so to be honest, I have not um been looking at the community at all. The big <laughs> thing that kind of pushed me into it is. Um, recently I've been studying for my comprehensive exams and, oh, I'm so sorry. And my, um, <laughs> my advisor wants me to look into how other hazards communicate and to kind of step away from weather. And so, um, that's what has recently gotten me into interested in that as well as kind of the Kilauea event has happened simultaneously. Um, so I've really gotten to get like a, like a firsthand perspective on how, your community is kind of communicating this stuff. And so I've found it like extremely fascinating to think through um, 
some of our similarities and differences and ways that we could like work with each other and learn from each other. And so I think it's really cool. Um, but that's that's where I became interested in it. Yeah, for for me, I think so. Castle and I were both lucky enough where we went to our undergraduate school. We were within a geography program. And so we are asked to take a physical, a couple of physical geography classes, and we touched on um, volcanology a little bit. So yeah. some of the basic things, like okay, you know, like what's shield a volcano, and shield volcano, like and composite, or you know, strato volcano. So we know we knew a little bit, but very little. Um, and seeing how you're interacting with people on what we uh, yeah. fondly call weather Twitter. We started seeing your tweets pop up and we're like, who is that? She's really cool. She's giving great information. Um, and obviously with Kilauea and the event occurring, it just brought in a really great opportunity to talk with you and to learn about, you know, how what we think about and whether with communication, crisis communication or just in general science communication, how that can apply to other fields and other areas. And um, and that's kind of what got this. And then we are sitting here talking to you now and hoping to, you know, broaden all of our horizons for our listeners and even for ourselves. We're learning so much today from from you and, and what all you have to offer. So. Oh, wow. That's really neat. And I, I have another question. So I'm actually co-chairing a session and a panel discussion, which I'm also appearing on at a conference coming up. And the topic is volcanology and social media. Ooh. And this is really to get our field to start to talk about how we how we communicate on social media, how we work together, how we make sure that we are supporting the local observatory, not harming mm. what they're saying. So essentially getting us all on the same page and maybe getting a best practices. Do you guys do that with weather Twitter or is, is it just something you guys are all kind of haphazardly yeah, doing as we well? So that's such, you brought up a great point. So one, back in January of this year, we had a um, American Meteorological Society meeting um, in uh, Austin, Texas. And we, which is like our community's kind of big meeting that we go to like for research and uh, also some practitioners, sure. come, but not as many as we know. Exactly. And yeah. we had a special session where we talked about, um, you know, communicating weather information, keeping things consistent, what does consistency mean? And part of the um, side topic that came out of that was weather Twitter. And how do we mm -hmm. use Twitter to kind of get be staying consistent on social media and Twitter? Because sometimes you might have people posting, you know, a hurricane is going to hit Florida in three weeks. And obviously, you know, that isn't something that we can say without a doubt that that's going to happen. But you have people who are using Twitter and putting out inf dangerous information in a way that's giving people, you know, scaring people. You also have yep. people who are arguing on Twitter back and forth within the weather community on weather Twitter. And so, you know, there came a question yep. as to how do you police something like that? Are there standards that we can put in place and say, okay, if you're going to be a part of this informal community, what kind of standards should we uphold? How do we best communicate information to people who are watching and seeing everything that we're tweeting to each other? Because if we're arguing back and forth, that doesn't look very good. And it, you know, we lose credibility mm -hmm. when we're talking like that and we're, we're attacking one another. So there's this big dilemma as to how we can move forward and really take social media and, you know, make it the best it can be and making it so that we can truly communicate weather information to everybody. And so is there an answer about it? It's extremely important and we're, we're in the right direction, but we are having those conversations, I think, which is um, super critical to moving ahead and moving forward into the future. Wow, that's, that's so great to hear. I think for me, our biggest problem is our audience. Yeah. Um, so I feel like within Weather Twitter, we see each other as our audience instead yes. of everyone else. <laughs> um, and there's even been studies that have shown like we like the weather community yes. is in its yeah. own little bubble. Um, so I think that is like our biggest hurdle to overcome at this point is who are we talking to when yeah. we are tweeting? Yeah. And, you know, Janine, you brought up a great point because you said earlier that there might have been some misunderstanding between you and other volcanologists who, because your audience is generally the, you know, the public and maybe there was some misunderstanding there. In some ways, like, you know, 
on my own personal, you know, Twitter account, I try to put out information for the public. And sometimes, you know, it might intermingle with the weather community. A lot of times, I think the weather community might say, let's, they might go storm chasing, and they might go, you know, tracking and chasing down tornadoes, getting these beautiful images and whatnot, but they might be getting really close to the tornado. But, you know, what we preach as people who are trying to get people prepared is to shelter, <laughs> to stay away from the tornado, not to chase after it. And so, for example, it might be counterintuitive or, you know, complex when we're, we're showing people that, oh, here's a beautiful tornado. I got kind of close to it. I kind of put myself in danger. But then again, you know, you're telling people if you see a tornado, you shouldn't go out and take pictures of it or follow it. Um, so there's some conflicting things that we have yet to really work out. But again, we're having the conversation. So um, definitely that's in the right direction. That's great. I'd love to have more of these conversations with your community because um, it's it's fascinating. One of the main differences I see between the weather community and volcanology community is you guys kind of have a season for bad weather every year. Whereas if a volcanologist ever works on a volcanic crisis personally monitoring the volcano, you know, that's that's good <laughs> yeah. so you have so much more of a chance to learn these lessons faster than we do mm -hmm. oh, that's a good point so, over over and over too yeah, yeah. and like every yeah. year at the same time we we get to practice hurricane season or severe weather season yeah. with tornadoes or things like that that's very true yeah it's it's a good point um yeah, and you, i think i think we should have janine come to an ams conference and just I'm have thinking. like a have like <laughs> a social media to. session um <laughs> Oh my gosh, that would be awesome. Where will you yeah. be in January next year? <laughs> you know what? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> but no, I, I think it's really important that we do have this conversation. And I think you're right. I think we need a bit of a, maybe a mentality change because, you know, this started occurring to me last year when I started putting a little more of my personality onto Twitter instead of just strictly tweeting Volcano Facts that I'm not sure everyone realizes that everything you say on Twitter is public. Everything. Mm -hmm. Even if people aren't following you, yeah. they can see what you're saying publicly. We are representing our entire fields when we're talking about volcanology or when you're talking about weather. Does that scare you sometimes, Janine? When you have that, do you have that yeah, pressure? Very good question. Of feeling <laughs> that things that you say might get quoted, like your tweet might end up in a major news article. Um, does that worry you sometimes, like the things that you're putting out there? And maybe not just facts that you're putting out there, but maybe sometimes when you're being sassy and somebody might, you know, retweet you and write something and then you might go viral. Does How do you kind of handle that aspect of it? Um, I handled it by being extremely careful from the get-go. So when a gung started and I started getting a bit of attention, um, I had no idea how big the attention was going to get when that started. None. Mm -hmm. um, but I actually had a handwritten set of rules for myself. And I also... Um, so I was keeping a list in the first month of a gung. I had contacted and asked for help for over 60 different volcanologists, geoscientists, emergency managers, social scientists. And I had a support group as well online, a little just a Facebook chat group with I think it was 12 volcanologists who I could bounce things off. So I was incredibly mm. careful with everything. And if I was unsure about something, I would ask. And if I was still unsure about something, I would leave it. Ooh, so yeah. having my own set of rules really has helped. And mm -hmm. um, when it comes to the sassy stuff, there are different needs for different voices. USGS is a formal voice and there is a big need for that. And sure. sometimes you just need to point out how freaking stupid something is. So people can next, the next time they see it go, <laughs> Oh yeah, this is dumb. Sure, I'm not going to yeah. listen to this. Mm -hmm. So <laughs> That's um, I'm generally a lot more, uh, serious on Twitter than I am in reality. Um, but <laughs> there are times when my real personality just has to come out a little bit more to make a point. Sure. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, and that's also what makes you different from those kind of sources. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so I think it's cool to, to use that to your advantage. Yeah. And they, they're both important. Both of them are, um, you know, mm -hmm. USGS, they're doing all the work on this. They're doing all the hard work. Um, I can only imagine how exhausted <laughs> they must be right now. And my goal is only to help get their information out or just general volcano processes information. I've spent a lot of time talking to media about just basically how volcanoes work. 
that's a large part of it. Mm-hmm. And with everything going on and, and, you know, you are very active on Twitter, social media, getting information out there. How do you develop your daily routine? How do you tell yourself, okay, enough today, let me take a break, walk away from this? Um, how do you mm. maintain that balance? Because I was talking to Great Castle question. earlier, you know, I love communicating on social media, but as of recently, I've kind of waned away from it a little bit because I found that it took up too much of my life. And unfortunately, you know, when I'm going back onto Twitter or social media and I'm trying to put out preparedness information or do things like that, I don't get as much attention because, you know, the way algorithms work on Twitter and Facebook is you kind of have to interact and be consistent on there and always putting stuff out there in order for people to see your stuff and for Twitter to recommend your material to other people. So if you're not on it as much, you don't get as much attention. So how do you kind of find a good balance in, in, you know, in terms of posting, getting information out there, but also um, maintaining your own personal life as well? Good question. Um, well, I'm in a good position. Well, I don't, I'm not going to say good position. I'm in a position where I have my postdoc work um, and that's it. Um, I'm, I've recently moved here. I'm... I live by myself. I don't have a family that, you know, I also need to pay attention to. My two cats are pretty easygoing. (laughs) Um, But also, I'm an extrovert. Um, I love interacting with people, and volcanoes are my life. They have been since I was a little kid. So I can do a lot of social media, a lot of outreach, a lot of talking to media, and not have it burn me out as easily, I think. But with a gung... Um, I was between jobs. I'd finished my PhD and I was looking for a job. And for three and a half months, every waking minute was a gung. It was always, if I wasn't on Twitter, it was communicating with scientists in the background. It was taking notes and making sure I had everything documented so that we could learn from these lessons. But as soon as I got a job and I need to focus on moving, I burned out badly <laughs> and it took me a couple of months to recover yeah it's definitely tough and, and finding the right balance is is different to hear your perspective on how you kind of go about everything and that may give some more listeners who are in the same situation um, some good perspective on on how they might yeah. try to um, conduct themselves on social media and, and finding that and striking that perfect balance as well yeah and i think you really have to go by how you're feeling um i know that sounds weird for a scientist <laughs> to say <laughs> But if you're feeling more tired one day and if you're finding yourself in your head kind of snapping at comments, walk away. You need a break. You've got to be responsible about taking care of yourself so that you can have the amount of focus you need to make sure you're saying the right thing. If you're exhausted, it's it's not a good idea. (laughs) Those trolls are going to get to you. So, yeah, you've got to take care of yourself. Self-care. Yeah, I was about to say it. We say it all the time, but self-care. Um, so we've covered a lot of ground in this podcast episode. So, um, when, when we think about our listeners, I always try and kind of wrap up a podcast with and ask like our guest, what are maybe three things that you would want our listeners to kind of take away from kind of the topics that we've discussed, um, and more specifically the Kilauea event. So the most important thing is be very careful of where you're getting your information. The best information is coming from USGS and civil defense and the local authorities. Um, That is the authoritative source of information. They have all the data that we don't have and they have all the knowledge and they have all the expertise. So go there. If you see something kind of weird in the media, check it against what's on the USGS website. They have a huge website with an enormous range of topics on there with excellent information. So listen to your sources and be very careful with where you're getting your information. And I think this certainly does not apply to everyone, but this is a situation that calls for compassion. You know, you've got to realize that people are actually suffering through this event. And I have seen a lot of comments um, that are kind of snapping, like, why are they living there in the first place? And that's just, it's Mm -hmm. not called for, guys. Come on, be nice, be kind. We're all human beings trying to get through this, and we all live with natural hazards no matter where we are.
Hi, I'm Jared Smith of the Carolina Weather Group, and here's a message to get you weather ready. The spring season is here, and we want to prepare you for spring weather threats, which includes flooding. If you're in your car, do not drive in a flooded roadways or around a barricade. Turn around, don't drown. Water may be deeper than it appears and can hide many hazards, like sharp objects, washed out road surfaces, and electrical wires. A vehicle caught in swiftly moving water can be swept away in a matter of seconds. Just 12 inches of water can float a car or small SUV, and 18 inches of water can carry away large vehicles. For more information, please visit the NOAA Weather Ready Nation website at weather.gov WRN. We were able to do a little bit of digging on your website and looking through the different resources that you had. And uh, also, you know, digging through your social media, and you're a huge proponent of girls and women in STEM. And we think that's amazing. We think it's great. Um, why is this so important to you? And, and how do you make your voice heard? And how do you, you know, get your information out there for and try to motivate women and girls to pursue volcanology or science fields in general? For me, it's not necessarily women specifically going after volcanology or science. It's women going after what they want in life, women following their dreams. And I actually gave a keynote talk to 300 girls a few days ago. And the message is, you know, when I was a kid, I loved volcanoes. In fact, I can't remember when I started loving volcanoes. I just always did. And it wasn't until I was 13 years old where I was in my geography class and the teacher wrote volcanologists on the board and explained what that was and I sat back in my chair and thought that's what I am that's so cool and I, I oh that's amazing <laughs> it, it's it it's it just changed that was a my, the moment my entire life changed um I'm 32 now so I was 13 then and I'm still on the path to doing exactly what I wanted to do when I was a kid and you know that's obviously changed because there was no Twitter back then but I wanted to help people I wanted to work with communication, and I wanted to work with explosive volcanic eruptions. And I'm doing that. But I was also very fortunate that I had a mum who would say, you can be whatever you want to in life. You've got to believe in yourself, work hard, you can do it. And I think a lot of kids don't have that. They might have some really cool dream of being a firefighter or anything, an artist, a mechanic, a singer, and have people shoot them down saying, no, you need to go and do something else mm -hmm. that's going to earn you money. So I'm a real proponent of people following their dreams, following that feeling in their gut that says, I'm excited about this. That is important That's to so me. That's so great to hear. I actually have goosebumps hearing you like oh, just telling amazing. that story because we can relate I to know. that in, in different ways. But, so you know, we again, we all have that passion for what we do. And it's so important. And it shows when you're passionate about something versus when you're doing something and you're completely disinterested. It just doesn't come off as genuine and people will mm -hmm. notice it right away. Um, and for you, it takes a toll on yourself if you're doing things that you're not truly happy about doing. So um, great advice there. And also, you know, you mentioned a few times in the podcast, um, on your website, you have a section about being kind and the, the power of being kind. Uh, and I was wondering if you could talk a little bit more about that and maybe your experiences with that, if that's okay. Yeah, yeah. So it's always been important to me, kindness and compassion. Um, when I was, I think around 20, I had a friend commit suicide. And in saying this, I know that that is um, from a whole different reasons. It's very personal um, and there is no blame on anyone. Now, with that said, I went to this guy's funeral and I went up to his mother and I said, I'm so sorry. We all loved him. And in her distraught, yeah, which I am sure I cannot even begin to imagine, she looked mm -hmm. at me and she said, he obviously didn't know that, did he? And I do not blame her for saying that one single bit. She just had her kid commit suicide. But that was another life-changing moment for me. That made me realize that all of those nice things I think in my head about people, I need to say them. Um, you need to give people the benefit of the doubt. You need to realize that someone's bad mood might just be them having a really hard day or a hard week or month or life. Um, that, that was a big moment for me. And I think that all of us need to be kind. There is so much hatred and fear out there right now. And you've got to be the change you want to be. Oh, goosebumps again. 
You're so motivating. We just <laughs> so great. We need to ha- we need to have you on all the time. <laughs> we need like a re- or like a recording <laughs> of that. We're just oh, wait, gonna we reuse that. <laughs> be the change that you want to be. <laughs> well, it's actually be the exactly. change you want to see in the world. That's really good. Yeah, mm. yeah. Maya Angelou, Maya Angelou, be the change you want to see in the world. Um, you can't yeah. sit there and complain that people are horrible to each other and then sit there on That's Twitter and be true. horrible to people. That's very true. Um, Janine, did you have anything else that you would like to add? Yeah. Meteorologists, please work <laughs> with us. <laughs> Let's do this together. Um, we're starting to talk and that's great. Let's do more of this. We all have different lessons and I think we can really help all of our communities, if we put those lessons together and work together on figuring out how to move forward to better communicate and help people. And Janine, if, if other meteorologists or our listeners want to reach you, um, what mm-hmm. is maybe a good place to do that? Uh, Twitter's a good place. I have a contact button on my website as well. Um, just Google my name and that pops up. But yeah, let's let's do this, guys. You guys have an enormous amount of experience, which I highly respect and I want to see us learning from you. And if there's anything we can offer you, then let's do that. And we'll have her information on our website. So if anyone is interested um, in getting in contact with her, you can visit our website too. Awesome. Dr. Janine Krippner, thank you so much. It's been a very thank enlightening you. and uh, very educational, but also very fun podcast episode that I hope our listeners will get a lot out of. Fantastic. Thank you so much for having me on. It's been really great talking to you guys. Perfect. Um, and before you leave, Castle, do we need her for anything else? Um, unless we want to do Song of the Week with her, it's totally up to both of you. You know, there's a song that has been getting stuck in my head. Thank you, media, <laughs> over the last three weeks. Can you guys guess what that song is? Oh no! Is it related to volcanoes? Volcanoes. Yes. Wait, very, what very song popular. is related to? Ring of Fire, Johnny Cash. Oh. <laughs> Every time of I see course. a Ring of Fire headline, that song gets kickstarted in my head. <laughs> <laughs> well, there you go. Oh my gosh. That's funny. Castle, <laughs> is your song related to volcanoes as well or no? Well, before we picked the topic, it was going to be Flames by uh, Zed and uh, Sia, but I <laughs> changed it at the last minute because I didn't know if we wanted theme-related songs. Um, <laughs> Flame goes with What is your fire. song then? I'm I'm looking, so you go ahead. I oh. forgot the name of it. <laughs> My song isn't related to volcanoes at all, but it's just something that I uh, popped up on uh, a playlist when I was listening to it. But um, it's called Give Me Love with uh, Don Diablo featuring Callum Scott. I think we had mentioned that Callum had won um, Britain's Got Talent back in a few years ago. And yeah. so he's really starting to make it big now and, and coming out with different songs and whatnot. But um, yeah, that's my song of the week and we'll, we'll link you to that on our website. Castle. Ugh, I'm still looking. <laughs> <laughs> Thy song of the week. Oh, I found it. I found it. I found it. Okay. It's called Your Side of the Bed by Loot. L-O-O-T-E. Okay. Um, I, again, I'm not very good at reading into songs. I just like the way it sounds and I like singing it. Um. So yeah, go check it out. It's pretty pretty cool. We don't endorse or not endorse the lyrics because we don't know what the lyrics say. But that's the song, yeah, we so don't. we endorse the song <laughs> in the tune. But you can go check it out on Spotify <laughs> along with our podcast. Yeah, um, our podcast because is we're on Spotify, Spotify now. now. It's so exciting! <laughs> oh my gosh! Um, and we should hopefully have this episode out, Janine, by Thursday. We normally Thursday. have our podcast out on Tuesdays, but um, just some things are going on in our lives right now that's making it yeah. hard to edit. So we'll um, we'll have a bunch of posts to um, advertise it and everything as well and promote it. Great. I'll help you promote that. Sure. Awesome. Yeah. Um, no Castle, anything else? And Janine, anything else? Uh, stay in touch, guys. This has been really great. It's awesome to hear what you guys are doing with your fields and the insight you have. I look forward to hearing more of it. And also, oh, before I forget, um, in there's a person that we know named um, Sally Potter, and she's over at the GNS yes. um, yeah. Science in New Zealand. Yeah. Do you know her? You know yeah. Sally? Yeah, not hugely well, awesome. but yeah, I, I, she does awesome work. I really admire okay, her. Okay, perfect. Because I was going to say, like, you know, we've 
we were put in touch with her a couple of years ago, I think, at one of our um, conferences. And so she's still in New Zealand working. And um, I just, when we were talking, I just thought to myself, wow, like if they don't know each other already, they should totally start talking to each other because we work in New Zealand on like crisis <laughs> communication and the social science work that they're doing over there. So um, if uh, if anything, yep. you know, our world worlds are colliding. We're networking and connecting more. So, all right. Thank you so much, Janine. Thanks. Thank, thank you guys for doing this. Thank you so much. <laughs> My pleasure. It's been a lot of fun. So thanks again to Dr. Janine Krepner for being on our podcast today. And as we mentioned before, we are on a variety of platforms and places, but you can find us at weatherhypepodcast.com and facebook.com slash weatherhype. You can also find us on Twitter at weatherhype, both words weather and hype, or you can send us a fantastic email at weatherhype at gmail.com. Please leave us reviews if you like what you hear. Um, you can do that on iTunes, uh, Google Play, Android, Stitcher, Spotify. <laughs> where, where am I missing? Where, where are um, we not? There's <laughs> a new one that's like Microsoft based that I always oh, yeah, forget the name right. of. Um, yeah. But it's out there. So if you're a Microsoft user, you're welcome. We on that too. <laughs> um, also, so, if you will hit the subscribe button in addition to leaving reviews, that way, whenever we have a new episode, it will automatically pop up into your queue, and you won't have to fiddle with going to try fiddle. trying to find the blah, 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 trying to find it. Um, <laughs> it will just pop right onto your phone, and it'll be like, "Hey, you got something new to listen to today?" Yeah, exactly. Um, yeah, but um, I guess that's all that I have. Until next time. Until next time, stay, stay hyped. hyped. I didn't even ask if you had anything else. I know, that's all I, I have. Like, I don't really care about I don't Castle. Have anything. Castle doesn't need anything. Whatever. <laughs> okay. Should we hit stop now, or yeah. do you want to? Oh. <laughs> <laughs> it's all good. No worries. We weren't we we're just gonna start talking bad stuff about you, of course. No. No, no. No, no. Hey, what are your what are your cats' names really quick? We yeah. Sakura is named after Sakura Volcano in Japan. And Harry. And Harry. That works. Love it. <laughs>